Matthew chapter 28, uh, the word of the Lord says this. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you will help us this evening understand the mysteries of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will enable us and empower us to uh, consider deeply what the resurrection means, not merely just for the Christian faith, but for for history itself. Uh, So be with us, be with the preacher, and be with those who are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we are back in our studies in Christology, and this will be our last lesson in uh, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, I believe this will be our fourth lesson in the resurrection of Christ. And last Sunday evening, uh, if you were here, we consider the resurrection of Christ and its uh, relationship to the new creation. Uh, and, and that is to say, when the resurrection happened, when Christ rose from the dead, we can say that an end time event, that being the resurrection of, uh, you know, a person, both body and soul, happened in the present. So something that was supposed to happen at the end happened in the present. Um, and what we see is this event, the resurrection of Christ, uh, really turned the world upside down. Um, and it pushed forward, really, or rather, um, it began what we call the, this new age. Okay, So what we are living on now is we're living in uh, the age of the present. So when, when God created the world up to the point of Christ's resurrection, um, that is called this age. Okay, And then when Christ rose from the dead, it began what's called the age that's to come. And many of us characterize the age that's to come uh, by being a place where there's going to be no more tears, no more pain, sorrow. We know that as the new heavens and the new earth. So when we can, when we think of the new heavens and the new earth, um, we can think of a time uh, when Christ will be with his people in such a way um, that there will be there will be no more tears, no more pain, but we will be like him. Um, well, the place hasn't yet came because we're not living in new heavens and new earth. Um, but rather the age, the time of being in the new heavens and the new earth has begun. And that happened when Christ rose from the dead. And what we see when Christ rose from the dead is Christ who was, or who had a finite body before he was resurrected, his finite body transformed into a heavenly body. He was glorified. And what Christ does there simply is he is elevated. His human nature is elevated. And what we see in our resurrection is that our human nature is going to be elevated. And it will be very much like the risen Jesus Christ. It will be glorified like Jesus Christ. 
So for the past three weeks, we've been looking at the resurrection of Christ from a theological standpoint. It's relationship to justification. It's relationship to the new creation. Um, and I think that the Bible, although it places emphasis on the resurrection being an historical event, I think places greater emphasis on it being a more, or rather the theological um, implications of the resurrection. So if you were to read a book on the resurrection of Christ, what you're going to read is primarily a book centered around whether Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. So they're going to focus on historical facts, historical people, um, and things like that, which is not bad, and we're going to do that this evening. Uh, but what I, what I was trying to show you in the past three weeks is that when we consider the resurrection of Christ, we ought to look at the theological implications first. So what does it mean how does the resurrection relate to our justification? How does the res- resurrection relate to, and we didn't talk about this, which we probably should have, um, but our sanctification? How, how does it relate to um, Jesus Christ, uh, or God rather, recreating the world in Jesus Christ and starting with people first, right? So the theological implications, what does it mean for us and our salvation rather than did a man over 2,000 years ago really rise from the dead? Okay. Um, however, I, we need to look at the historical facts of the resurrection. Um, when my father passed away, one of the things that helped me, or rather one of the things that God, um, by his spirit, was showing me um, in the Bible, but also just reading the right literature, was... That there was a man over 2,000 years ago that died by the Roman soldiers, was buried, and rose from the dead. I mean, during my time of considering whether Christianity was true or not, the one thing that got me over the hump was Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. And if Christ really rose from the dead, then everything must be true because the resurrection of Christ is a supernatural event, right? I mean, the things that are hardest for Christians, or rather the things that are hardest for critics and skeptics, atheists, non-believers of the faith to um, to agree with on is the supernatural events in the Bible, right? I mean, did, we're, we're still debating on whether Jonah really was swallowed by a whale, right? I mean, I think there was a, a woman recently who was swallowed by a whale, and her Pastor Antonio and I said, man, you know what? Yep, that verifies it. I mean, not that we believe it, of course. You know, it's just really hard to grasp, right? To to wrap our minds around a human body being swallowed by a well. Um, um, but also, think about Jesus Christ for a second, okay? And think about all the supernatural things centered around Jesus Christ. So, for instance, at jump to believe in the you know in the um in the articles of faith concerning christianity you must believe in a supernatural event that is the virgin birth that's very hard to believe right it's very hard to believe that there could be a person who was truly god and truly man and these natures are never mixed they're never confounded right never the human nature blends into the divine nature and the divine nature blends into the human nature it's so abstract from how we think of persons right and natures and things like that and then think about the miracles that christ done throughout his life but also the resurrection people don't rise from the dead and so in order to believe many of the things that we claim um the critic and the skeptic 
They have to be released from the way they think uh, the world and creation operates. Okay, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, but they have to believe in the supernatural. Okay, and I'm not talking about like, you know, Twilight Zone or Word of Faith things. I'm talking about the things that the Bible says that are beyond the mode of human reason. Because there's a lot of things, especially with Christ, that are simply beyond the mode of human reason. I mean, think about even the way in which we have our scriptures. It's really beyond the mode of human reason that God moved men to pin his very words. Right. Um, so the one thing when I was struggling, and I'm sure you probably can attest to this, too, is when I was struggling with the Christian faith and whether or not God is for real and, and all these other things, um, was the reliability of the resurrection account, okay? The historical veracity of it, meaning that Jesus Christ was an historical figure and it was certain and true that he rose from the dead, okay? Um, so I hope that this evening's lesson will be of some use to you as we talk to critics and skeptics and those who just cannot cannot accept that the claims of Christianity, because we are making some very bold claims, <laughs> if you don't uh, know it or not. This morning, or this evening, I rather want to look at uh, this this um, aspect of the resurrection of Christ being a historical event um, in two ways. Number one, we'll look at some objections. And number two, we'll look at some evidences. So number one, objections. Four objections. And number two, just two evidences. There are many people who can do a much in-depth study on this. And uh, and if you want links to various YouTube lectures and things like that in books, I can give them to you um, because this is a massive subject, a very, very massive subject. And we can um, get lost in many of the people names, many of the things that um, outside literature uh, that we can read um, to help verify this 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 event. Um, but. Let's consider four objections to the resurrection of Christ. What are people saying when they deny the resurrection of Christ? What are they saying? Okay, other than merely Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Well, number one, you have the naturalist objection. You have the naturalist objection. Okay, many people simply cannot believe in the resurrection because they simply can't believe that miracles happen. Again, many people don't believe in the resurrection of Christ because they don't believe that miracles happen. In the naturalist mind, dead people do not come back to life. Therefore, Jesus didn't come back to life. Again, in the naturalist mind, miracles don't happen. Dead people don't come back to life. And based upon that premise, Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. It's very simple. Uh, the famous New Testament critic Bart Ehrman says this. Miracles are so improbable that they should be regarded as impossible. So miracles are so improbable, meaning that the, the likelihood of a miracle happening is zero to none. Therefore, they should be regarded as impossible. It's unlikely to see a miracle happen. Therefore, miracles don't happen. Okay. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament then should be regarded as stories told by Christians in the early church and not, and hear this, not as accounts of real historical events. So the resurrection of Christ should be just merely an oral tradition that was passed down from, from person to person. But it wasn't a real 
historical event, right? It would be like saying the Holocaust was something that was passed down, but it didn't really happen. Okay. So how do we, how do we, um, how do we answer this objection that's called naturalism? Well, first, what is naturalism? People who believe in naturalism presume that only the material or natural world exists. And it rejects events caused by something other than the natural order of things. Again, people who believe in naturalism presume that only the material or natural world exists and it rejects events caused by something other than the natural order. So naturalists reject any and everything that doesn't follow the natural order of creation. They reject anything and everything that doesn't follow the natural order of creation. So a naturalist would reject truths such as the virgin birth. Why? Because virgins can't have babies. That is beyond the natural order of things, right? A, a, a naturalist would, um, would deny uh, creation out of nothing. Okay, so they're not going to say that God out of nothing created the world because that's not how things come about. And also too, amidst anything, a naturalist is going to deny the resurrection of Christ because simply put, dead people don't rise from the dead. And um, we should challenge this objection. And how do we challenge this objection? I mean, um, at at face value, it, it does seem plausible, does it not? I mean, it's not every day someone rises from the dead, or it's not every day that we hear a virgin is pregnant, right? So how do we answer this? Well, one question I would ask to a naturalist would be, how did the world come into existence then? If you don't believe that someone caused the world to come into existence if you don't believe in a supernatural event, then give me your naturalist interpretation of creation. How did it come into being? They might say, well, it was a long process. And then, boom, something happened. Right? It, it came about through random chance. We are to reject that. Who caused the world to come into being? When we think about the complexity and the design and the intricacies of uh, the individual, how can all of that come to be and be explained apart from there being someone behind it, right? Can a naturalist explain the complexities and the details of the human being without there being someone behind it? Okay? And this is going to get into you know, various... Um, Various ways in which people have defended the truth, such as every cause, for every cause, there's a cause. Okay? Things don't come into being apart from there being someone that brings it into being. Okay? Things don't just happen by chance and by randomness, but things come into being by someone or something. And what we are saying in the Christian faith is, with regard to creation, it's brought about through God, Right? With regard to the virgin birth, it's brought about through God, right? So anytime we think we are saying it's brought about through God, we're talking about a supernatural thing happening, okay? 
One theologian has said concerning the naturalist objection, the naturalist objection to the resurrection is problematic. From the start, it rejects a claim about an alleged fact that Jesus rose from the dead in real time, in real space. So already, we're, we're already uh, cutting to pieces the naturalist objection because we were saying that the resurrection of Christ was an historical event that happened in time and space. Right? Before considering the evidence for the claim. So the resurrection, there's rather, I'll get to there. It assumes that what is possible and draws conclusions based on its initial assumptions. This is circular reasoning. It assumes a viewpoint and then makes a claim based on that viewpoint. In other words, the naturalist assumes the resurrection to be untrue based on their view of the created order without even looking at the facts. Without even saying, what is your evidence? They're already denying that the resurrection can even happen because they're naturalists. They haven't seen a dead person rise from the dead. So therefore, dead people don't rise from the dead. Or rather, there's not an amount of evidence that shows that dead people rise from the dead. I mean, you only have two people in history rising from the dead. right? Or rather, more than that, I'm sorry. But apart from the Bible and the biblical accounts of many people rising from the dead... Naturalists might say that's just not enough people to verify. You need more than that. Okay? The naturalists uh, may say, I've never seen a person rise from the dead, therefore no one can rise from the dead, or it's very unlikely that a resurrection from the dead can happen because we don't have verified accounts of the resurrection, and we don't have multiple, multiple, multiple accounts of this happening. And again, when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, we are saying two things. We're saying both it's an historical event, something that really did happen over 2,000 years ago, but we're also saying it's a supernatural event. It's actually something that disrupts the created, the natural order of things. Okay? And if you can't get with that, then you're doomed. <laughs> okay? If you can't, if you can't already say that miracles happen, and if you're already putting yourself in a box, and saying that only things happen in the natural order, then you're going to deny things like the resurrection of Christ because the resurrection of Christ is a supernatural event. Yes, I will agree. Dead people don't often rise from the dead. But they can rise from the dead if God is involved. So the resurrection of Christ is an historical event also. I mean, apart from being a supernatural event, that each person of the Trinity was involved in raising Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is a historical event. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 15, verses 33 through 8, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that, it, and that he appeared, and here's, really the historical reliability of it. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most who are still alive, though have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as of one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So if you want historical reliability, Paul says, oh, he appeared to people. That's not an issue, right? Um, And mind you, Paul, in his mind, probably thinks that he's the last one that Christ would appear to, considering who he was as Saul, right? So if anyone is going to deny the resurrection of Christ, um, it's going to be him. Uh, but mind you, what you're going to have, though, in 
uh, Jewish literature is the Pharisees, out of all people, did not deny the resurrection of Christ. It was merely only the Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection, but the Pharisees who were the most, uh, who were the enemies of Christ, they would say, no, yeah, that man did rise from the dead, um, which is quite, quite interesting. We next turn to what's called the, the swoon theory, the swoon theory. Some scholars have tried to explain away the resurrection of Christ with the so-called swoon theory, okay? In the 18th century, a German scholar named Karl Barth, um, Friedrich Barth, proposed that Jesus never died on the cross. Instead, Barth claimed Jesus faked his death by swooning. Now, what is swooning? Using a mixture of drugs he acquired from Luke the physician. Then, when he regained consciousness... So he was drugged up when he regained consciousness. He appeared to have risen from the dead and convinced the Jews that he was the Messiah. So Jesus Christ took drugs, fell asleep. When he regained consciousness, he rose. Right. Or rather, he made it seem like he rose from the dead. This theory was advanced um, by by a man named Michael Pageant, who proposed that Pontius Pilate was bribed to take Jesus' body down from the cross after he fell unconscious. Jesus recovered some time later and thereafter lived a private life. He and his partner, or possibly wife, Mary Magdalene, had at least one child, and his descendants eventually migrated to southern France, where they became a powerful dynasty in the early medieval kingdom of the Franks. And this theory was ultimately popularized by the Da Vinci Code. In 2000s, in the 2000s. Um, so, this theory, saints, is not something that's uncommon. Muslims take elements of this theory because Muslims are going to say that Christ did not die on the cross, but it was someone else. It might have been Judas that was on the cross. So, um, they're going to say that, no, it, it wasn't Christ on the cross, therefore the resurrection of Christ never took place. Now, how would you answer this objection? Apart from it being really silly, okay? Jesus taking drugs and then... Um, I mean, first off, um, what do you say about Christ as a person, right? I mean, he's a liar then. Um, he's probably going around saying that he's resurrected from the dead when he never even dead, was dead in the first place. How do we answer these objections? Well, simply put, the evidence for Jesus' physical death on the cross is overwhelming. I mean, apart from Jesus rising from the dead, him actually dying is overwhelming. Uh, the Journal of Medical of the American Medical Association article titled On the Physical Death of Resurrection in 1986 concludes that the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead. Okay, that Jesus was dead. By the time that he was taken down from the cross and any other explanations such as the swoon theory are at odds with modern medical knowledge. Okay. It's essentially pseudoscience that's trying to infiltrate the Christian religion, right? And, and, and chop the pieces of the one thing that we value so the most, which is Jesus Christ and his resurrection, okay? There is no reason, saints, to think that Christ did not exist. I mean, even some of the um, enemies of the cross, such as Bart Ehrman, will say that, no, Jesus Christ did exist, Right? And therefore, we must believe that Jesus did die and did he rise from the dead. Okay? To deny such evidence, essentially, saints, is to deny history itself. If you deny 
the historical Jesus, that there was a man named Jesus who was truly God, who lived, died, and rose, then you're denying a large piece of history. Okay? It's essentially denying that the Holocaust happened or, or, or denying um, that uh, uh, the World Trade Center uh, didn't collapse. Right? Those are large pieces of history. And uh, Jesus Christ, of course, is the centerpiece of all history in which the whole, uh, in, in the whole history of the world turns around. Right. The third objection to the disciples or uh, to to the uh, reliability of the resurrection is the disciples stole the body. You're going to hear this often. If you talk to a critic, atheist, skeptic, they might say, well, I don't believe the resurrection of Christ because the t- disciples stole the body or grave robbers came in and stole the body. OK, one of the oldest attempts to under- undermine the claim that Jesus rose from the dead was developed within the days of the event itself. So this is not something that happened in the 1800s, this, this theory. This is not something that happened in our lifetime. This is not something that happened maybe years after Christ's resurrection, but rather in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, it says this. When the guards found the tomb empty early Easter morning, they reported it, they reported to the Jews. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So guards, they saw what happened. They, they go into the city. They told the chief priests. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So this theory of the disciples stealing the body was developed in Christ's time. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Very interesting, right? I mean, even in the even in the days of Christ, after Christ has risen from the dead, the enemies of Christ are and the forces of Satan are trying to tackle down uh, what we believe concerning the Christian faith and the joy that we have in the Christian faith. Right. I mean, if you deny the resurrection of Christ then you're a Pharisee, you're you are one of the deepest and darkest enemies of the Christian faith in Christ's own day. But unbelievers in the resurrection came up with a theory that the body of Jesus was stolen by the disciples or maybe grave robbers. And the one thing about the grave robber theory is it's 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 funny to me because when when people go into houses and steal things, they leave things a mess. So if someone wants to go into your home and steal something uh, unless they're like, you know, very methodical and tactical with what they're doing. You're going to see some things in disorder. And what we have in the Bible, when Christ was risen from the dead, Mary, Mary goes into the tomb and she sees the face cloth of Christ folded up in place in a separate spot. Grave robbers are not going to fold up the face cloth of Jesus Christ and put it in a nice spot by itself. But you're going to see some disorder. And so, and likewise, there's many problems with the theory of the disciples stole the body. So how do we answer this objection and silence it? The Roman soldier guards were highly trained individuals. Extremely trained individuals. Which means that they knew how to kill people. They knew how to bury people. They knew whom they were burying, when they buried them. But also, they knew how to guard 
tombs. They knew how to guard the tombs of dead people. So to say that the guards fell asleep when Christ was in the tomb is to liken it sort of like police officers who guard the president outside of the White House falling asleep. Or maybe like those guys who stand outside um, uh, Buckingham Palace who wear the, 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 the hats, right? Guarding the Queen of England. They fell asleep. They're not going to fall asleep. It's just not going to happen, right? Um, and likewise here. But also when we think about people who were guarding the, t- the, the tomb, it's estimated that there was between 10 to 30 guards guarding the tomb of Christ. So to say the disciples stole the body and the guards fell asleep is highly unlikely because first the disciples had to move past the guards, right? So... You have highly trained soldiers against fishermen and tax collectors trying to maneuver, right, and steal the body from these highly trained individuals. That doesn't happen unless, you know, you're playing a video game, right? It just doesn't happen, okay, without being caught. Um, But also, they would have to remove the body without being loud, Without being loud. It's been said, depending on the type of stone used, the, the, the stone that was in front of the tomb of Christ weighed between one to two tons. Okay? That is 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. But also, the, the rolling stone was set in a groove in front of the entrance. So it was very easy to move, you know, roll it, but it was very hard to move it out. Okay, and it, it, it would have taken an incredible amount of strength for the disciples to move this stone. And think about when you're moving something. I mean, you know, if I'm going to lift up this 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 uh, this, this um, pulpit here, you're going to I'm going to do that. So imagine trying to move one to two tons. You're going to be loud, right? You're going to grunt a little bit. And to think that the disciples did this without being heard and being seen is highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. But also we have in the testimony of Scripture that people were already trying to disprove the resurrection of Christ. Okay? So we are to deny the disciples stole the body. I mean, think about the disciples. After Christ was risen from, the, or after Christ died, they're scared to death. Now, what, what what's going to give them confidence, you know, while they're all saying, hey, you know what, man? Let's go get that body. No. They are scared for their lives and they're not going to take on Roman soldiers in an attempt to take Christ's body. But also, what are they going to do with it? The last one, and then we'll get into our evidences, two evidences that are short. This is for you, Bobby. The mass hallucination theory, the mass hallucination theory. Another popular attempt at undermining the evidence for the resurrection focuses on the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now, uh, there are many who acknowledge um, that many, if not all, the disciples who claim to have seen the resurrection of Christ did in fact see him. And if those who say, okay, I grant you that the disciples saw him and over 500 people saw him, I'll give you that. But what they're going to say is the disciples and the people who saw him Underwent a pragmatic experience. So, for instance, 
when one is grieving, after one has passed away, you might have an hallucination of seeing that person. So maybe in a certain mind state, okay, um, you're, you're in your grief and all that, you might see or think you saw the person who just died. You're hallucinating, right? You're seeing things that are not there because you're, you're having a traumatic experience. Many claim the disciples, what the disciples saw was not an objective flesh and body Jesus, but rather they were hallucinating. They didn't really see him like you're seeing me now, right? Flesh, body, and all that. But rather, what they saw was Jesus Christ under a traumatic experience. They were hallucinating. Richard Carrier, one of the leading proponents of this theory, claims that the best explanation consistent with scientific findings and the surviving evidence is that the first Christians experienced hallucinations of the resurrection of Christ, of the, of the risen Christ, of one form or another. Atheists love to use this. Okay, this is not something that's a theory like the um, like the one when Christ took drugs and like you know that's kind of silly. This is actually very prominent, right? How do we answer this objection? Well, first, we must grant that hallucinations are not uncommon. I mean, particularly grieving persons in stressful events might see someone who's not there. Okay, we're gonna we'll grant that. Jesus' disciples were certainly under mass anxiety and grief. So we're, we're kind of already um, giving them, right, uh, the argument. After Christ's death, such event, it, w- it was right for disciples to feel what they were feeling and maybe have an hallucination. But there's two problems with this theory. First, while hallucinations might be unusual, this theory implies that hundreds of people because Paul mentions over 500 in 1 Corinthians, experience the same hallucinations. Okay? The problem with that is that's not how hallucinations work. Okay? Hallucinations are private and individual occurrences. They don't happen to mass amount of people. They they can't not be seen by another individual. So like if I'm saying, oh my gosh, I see someone whom I deeply love right there. You're not going to see that person. Only I am. It's a private thing. They are not collectively experienced. And there is no evidence in psychological literature supporting the notion of mass hallucinations. They don't happen. For example, suppose... We came in one Sunday morning, all of us, and we said, hey, I had a dream that I just got the new Xbox. You say, you know what? I had that same dream. And then Antonio says, I had that same dream. And then Scott, and then we all say, yes, last night I had that same dream. That's very unlikely. And that is sort of likened to a mass hallucination. Just as we wouldn't come in and say we all had the same dream, People wouldn't be in a room or whatever and say, we saw the same individual. Okay? It doesn't happen. Um, secondly, the eyewitnesses did not merely report that they saw Jesus with their eyes or heard him with their ears, but they also claimed that they physically touched him. Okay? Christ was not a hollow. Right? He was not some, they weren't hallucinating, but rather they touched and felt him. 
Think of the case of Thomas. Though his friends all claimed they have seen Jesus, he still didn't believe. Thomas didn't believe that Christ was risen from the dead. In fact, you might have think that, I think it might be fair to say that Thomas thought that the disciples were hallucinating. <laughs> like You are the ones that are hallucinating. Um, Thomas says in John chapter 20, verses 25 to 27, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will not, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be to you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your finger and put your, uh, and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Right? So what these men were seeing were not hallucinations, but they were seeing a, a physical person that they can see. And, you can, and if you read on in the Gospels, I mean, they even ate fish with. And that's quite interesting, and it's quite different than what hallucinations are. I mean, you're not, you're not going to, if I think that I'm seeing someone, I'm not going to be engaging with them in such, in such a way that like I'm touching them and eating with them, right? It's not going to happen. And similar, what we see in the resurrection of Christ is Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. And what the disciples saw were was a man that was body that they can touch. Okay. Okay. As we come to a close, two evidences are going to be really short. Why should we believe the resurrection is true? After we have, I hope, (laughs) dismantled some of the objections to the resurrection, now, why do we believe it's true? Two evidences. Number one, because the Bible said it happened. Why do you believe the resurrection is true? Number one, because the Bible says it happened. Okay, and you know, when people try to give evidences for the resurrection of Christ, they're going to go to, you know, Josephus, they're going to go to all these other external evidences and people, which is fine. We can do that, but we must start with the Bible. What does the Bible say? Okay. Well, we have to think about what's, what's the nature of the Bible? Because a critic, except going to say, okay, well, I don't believe the Bible's true, right? But what does the Bible say about itself? Well, there's, there's three eyes that we must hold on to, among other things, but we must hold on to these three eyes when we consider the Bible itself and the nature of the Bible. Number one, the Bible's inspired. The Bible's inspired. It's inspired. Number two, the Bible's inerrant. The Bible's inerrant. And number three, the Bible's infallible. The Bible's infallible. This is what the Bible claims concerning itself. The Bi- if, if, if you were to speak to the Bible, which is weird, and you say, Bible, who are you? I'm inspired. I'm inerrant. I'm infallible. You know, sufficient, authoritative, uh, all these other things, right? The Bible will say about itself, that God says about his own word, rather, I mean, it, I'm, it, it, the, the, what you have in front of you, these 66 books are inspired by me. They're inerrant and they're infallible. Okay, what is inspired? Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. What we are saying, when we are saying the Bible is inspired, as we are saying is, is the very words of God. The Bible is the very words of God. Now, no saints... The Bible, the Word of God, does not find its origins in the minds of men. Okay? 
It doesn't find its origins in the minds of men. The Bible is not a mixture of both man's thoughts and God's thoughts. Okay? As hard as it is for us to comprehend. It's not a mixture of Paul's words and God's words, but rather the Bible is solely God's words. God's words. Scripture itself, the scriptures that many of you hold in your lap, that you read, are the very words of God given to man. Okay, God uses man as his instrument. Just as I'm using this microphone as an instrument to speak loud and boldly to you and clearly, God uses men as an instrument to pin his thoughts, to pin his words. The Holy Scripture, Holy Spirit moves certain men to pin the words of God. So what you're reading, saints, is not merely Mark's thoughts, Matthew's thoughts, Paul's thoughts. They are God's thoughts. Secondly, the Bible is inerrant. It's without error. It's without error. And it's sad how theologians and certain pastors want to now undermine this. That there, there is a little bit of error and all that. But, I mean, think of the logic of the Bible. If the Bible is God's words and God is incapable of making error, then God, or the, rather his word, is without error. But also, in addition to it being without error, we make another crazier claim, and that is it's infallible. It's incapable of making an error. Right? The Bible is without errors, but also you can't even look for an error because they're not there. Okay? In Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, Psalm 19, 7, Psalm 119, Proverbs 35, all speak of the word of God being perfect. Not our perfect, right? I'm talking about the very apex of perfection because it's God's words. It's God's words given to man. The second reason why we should believe in the resurrection, the last reason, is because of the confidence the resurrection gave to disciples. Okay? The confidence that the resurrection gave to the disciples. Think about after Christ rose from the dead, um, or rather, when Christ died, before he rose from the dead, think about the mental state of the disciples. They were scared. They were anxious. They didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, they were fearful that the Roman soldiers might go and find them and kill them. Christ rises from the dead, visits them, and what do you have now? You have Acts. You have great, you have Peter's great sermon. Right? On the day of Pentecost. And what is Peter saying at the day of Pentecost? What is he preaching? He's preaching the resurrection of Christ. I mean, Peter, out of all, the one who denied Christ three times, he sees the risen Christ. And now he preaches the risen Christ. Right? And all of them did. I mean, Christ walking through the door and the men seeing Christ was the confidence the only confidence the disciples needed and said, you know what? Let's go get it. You know, Christ has given us this great commission. And we believe and what we are preaching is true because we've seen the risen Christ. All of it's true. All of it's true. 
So Christ rising from the dead and visiting his disciples, these 12 men is what gave the disciples, as many have said, to turn the world upside down, to take the gospel to uh, as far as they could reach. But also Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, something interesting, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying the gospel I'm preaching to you, the Christ I present to you is not a myth. It's, he's not an oral tradition. He's not a fable, but rather he was an historical person. He lived, died, rose, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And how do we know that? I saw it. Right? I saw it. And Peter can point to many others whom saw him, who saw the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. There's more evidences that we can give, saints, much more. But I hope these are the evidences that will catapult you to know the word, as being inerrant, inspired, and infallible, right? We can trust God's word, but also to see what it, the resurrection of Christ, to see what it did to the disciples of Christ. It emboldened them. It empowered them, right? It gave them all the confidence they needed to preach. And quite frankly, saints, the confidence that I have in Christianity is because the one who claimed he was going to rise on that third day really did rose on the third day. I mean, we are, our Christ, our, the reason why we believe in the truths of Christianity is not because mama told us and we were raised this way. It's because Jesus Christ said that he was going to rise and he did rise. And people saw him after his resurrection, right? And one of the great things we know is because he rose from the dead and it really happened. He said he's coming back. He's coming back for us. And it's really going to happen. We can trust him. We can trust God's word, right? And saints, that is the great confidence that we are to have as Christians as we are living in a world uh, that presents to us many challenges of the Christian faith. But saints, know this, that they're never new challenges. A new argument is never new. Right? It's maybe said in a different way that make it seem like it's new, but they're never new. And the arguments that people bring toward Christianity are not something that's a recent invention, but as we saw, that even in Christ's own days, people were trying to undermine the resurrection of Christ. People were trying to cut down the truth of Christianity. So saints, be confident in what you believe. Why? Because it's historically true. We can believe it. I mean, we, as we close, are the only ones. We are part of the only religion that has historical um, reliability backed. We, 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 I mean, many debates that I've seen Pastor Antonio uh, have with Mormons, right? And he brings up all the historical things that Mormons claim, but they're not reliable, Right? Uh, I don't know, you know, much of the, histor the, the uh, historical ability of Mormonism as far as like, you know, uh, golden plates and coins and spears and things like that. Jesus coming to the Americans. You can't find any of those things, right? 
Same, same with Islam and all these other uh, false religions and cults. So saints, uh, hold fast to the faith that was, that's been delivered to you uh, because it's historically true. Let's pray.